Scaling founders like you need a safe space to share not just ideas, but mistakes to avoid and lessons learned on your startup journey. That's where SASDOC comes in. Next October, SASDOC 2023 will bring over 6,000 scaling SaaS founders together in Dublin for our annual SaaS festival. Our friends and family sale is live now, giving you not only the lowest prices, but two for the price of one. It's a no-brainer. Buy now and save over 1,400 euros and connect, learn, and grow at Europe's largest SaaS conference. Prices increase this Friday, December 2nd. Go to sasdoccom forward slash sasdoc 2023 to redeem your two-for-one ticket at their lowest ever prices. Everybody's in a hurry, right? Everybody's in a hurry to get to results. Everybody's in a hurry to get to the next milestone and not everybody is eager to take a step back and learn how they can get there faster by slowing down. Uh, that's a lesson, you know, it's like in racing, smooth is fast. And sometimes you have to go slow to go smooth. Um, but ultimately that helps you go fast. And so it's a challenge to teach people that lesson. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. All right, welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, founder of SaaStock, and I am delighted to be joined today uh, by uh, Elias Rubel, who's the CEO of Matamade. Uh, welcome, Elias. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, Alex. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, great to have you on. Uh, where, are you, where are you calling in from? I am in Denver, Colorado at the moment. Okay, very good. At the moment, are you usually based there, or is this a temporary thing? Yeah, I bounce between here and San Francisco. So, uh, you know, here for the winter. Enjoying, okay, cool. enjoying any, the snow. any preference? Do you prefer Denver or San Francisco, or is it uh, each very different? They're so different. I mean, I miss uh, I miss the water when I'm in Denver, and I miss the mountains when I'm in uh, San Francisco. So, <laughs> very, very cool. And we're we're recording this. It's the day before Thanksgiving. Uh, so are you going to take a couple of days off? Like how do you spend Thanksgiving? Um, yeah, we're, we're headed up to the mountains. Uh, we've got a cabin in the woods by a lake. And so just headed there with some family and unwinding, build a fire, sit around the fireplace, low key. Sounds, uh, well, you say low key, but so sounds idyllic. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, my, my next couple of days, uh, obviously we don't have Thanksgiving in, in London and, uh, next couple of days are going to be spent uh, in in London. Lots of meetings, working. So uh, uh, I, I aspire to to be living a Thanksgiving dream in uh, in a cabin in uh, in Denver. But uh, good stuff. But uh, uh, Elias, so I always ask the guests the first question, um, so we get to know them a little bit better. So uh, who is Elias Rubel? Yeah, I mean, I, I my journey is a little bit weird and winding. I don't think I can be pinned to one thing in particular. I um, went to art school originally, dropped out of art school, founded a SaaS company, raised venture funds. Uh, that company was acquired in 2014. Um, I then went out, rode my motorcycle across Central America, came back, was feeling rejuvenated, acquired an e-commerce company, uh, did a four-year turnaround, sold that to private equity, and then 
Um, all the while, our original investors in that first SaaS business had been plugging me into their portfolio, helping with early stage um, growth, marketing. And um, I realized that I could be a lot more effective if I had my own team and also just frankly missed having my own team, but had this realization that they didn't just need strategy. They also needed execution, arms and legs. And so I hired up all my favorite B2B marketers and, and that was what became Mattermade. Very cool. Uh, so riding a motorcycle across South America, how long does that take? And uh, <laughs> uh, and is it just the fresh air that rejuvenates you, just the time of work, the space that, that, that gave you mentally? Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of that. It, uh, Central America was was a was an absolute trip. I started in Portland, Oregon, on a on a BMW motorcycle um, with some knobby tires, and rode with a buddy down through Mexico. We covered every. Um, once we left Mexico, we covered every Central American country except for Belize over the course of about two and a half months. A mixture of camping, staying in hostels. Uh, at one night, we slept on top of chicken freezers where they had like frozen chicken meat uh, because we had been chased at gunpoint down a hill. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, 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 we kind of saw it all. And, and the idea was really, yeah, just to do something that would take, take my mind off the grind that we had just been through, um, get the fresh air, meet interesting people, have conversations that weren't, uh, you know, insular to the industry that I'd been obsessed with for the the prior three, four years, and it accomplished all those things. Why, why were you chased at gunpoint down the hill? Were you uh, <laughs> in, in an area that you shouldn't have been? Or? Man, I wasn't expecting to, to tell the story uh, on the podcast, but I'm happy to. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. When I when I tell people we did this trip, everybody's like, oh man, this sounds so dangerous. I can't believe you rode through all those places. And honestly, I feel bad even telling the story because 99.9% .9 of the entire trip felt totally safe incredibly welcoming and warm. Um, and, and the fact that we got ourselves into a situation uh, was entirely our own fault. So the, you know, the number one rule of, aside from wear all your gear, of course, is don't ride at night, right? And the same, same reason you wouldn't ride through uh, certain parts of Chicago or Los Angeles at night by yourself on a shiny, expensive motorcycle, you wouldn't do that in you know, certain countries. Uh, or, or cities elsewhere. So we found ourselves having poorly timed this this one particular trip through rural Guatemala. And um, we, th we thought everything was going well, and then the road literally just ended. It went from being this beautiful paved road to uh, a bunch of rocks, and you could tell they were building the road still. And so we were supposed to arrive right before sundown. We ended up uh, climbing this hill at about five miles an hour, just pounding it out on these rocks uh, around midnight. And as we were cresting this hill, there were some folks who were essentially just waiting for anybody traveling at night uh, to, to shake them down and, and rob. And the, thankfully there was a, a group of people there. I think they were construction workers and they flagged us down and they were like, you know, warning us, hey, don't, don't keep going. There's bad stuff ahead. And we couldn't tell, you know, our, our, at that time, our Spanish wasn't the best. And so we we're trying to understand exactly what they're trying to communicate. And um, all of a sudden they ran behind this dump truck and then uh, assault rifle fire came from over the hill. And then this truck came flying over the hill and we turned around and started booking it down the hill and got chased by this truck for a little while. Um, and it turns out, you know, the, the construction workers were trying to warn us and um, then the whatever bandits were 
re- realized what was going down and chased after us. And that was when we found at the bottom of this hill, once we'd created some distance from this truck, this family that was closing up their local tienda. And uh, they, we explained to them what was happening. They're like, oh, well, come sleep inside of our tienda. Like, it's safe. You'll be fine. And so we, that's, that's how we ended up sleeping on top of a chicken freezer uh, in the middle of rural Guatemala. It was, it was a hell of a night. <laughs> Very cool, very cool. We appreciate you sharing that. And 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 so after you you sort of say being refreshed, you, you started to contact you know some of the best marketers that you knew uh, uh, or know still, uh, and created Matamade, right? So so what is Matamade? You know what does it do? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you know most people would call Matamade an agency, but we I, I I don't even like to call us an agency where we help drive down costs to acquire and help drive pipeline for you know, the fastest growing SaaS companies out there. Um, we've worked with companies like um, Product Board, Loom, Dropbox, Com, Hopin, uh, Grain, list goes on and on. But generally we're brought in and thought of when the challenge is, you know, even the fastest growing companies struggle, and this sounds like a non-statement, it's obvious, but you know, as you grow really quickly, your cost to acquire creeps up. Um, and another common commonality is, you're growing, but you don't always know why, or you don't always know exactly what's driving that growth. And so we're brought in to help get cost to acquire under control and then scale that demand efficiently. What are some of the interesting lessons you can share? So you mentioned some great names there. Um, I, I think I know most of them, but uh, yeah, what, what can you share from working with the likes? It doesn't have to specifically be like Dropbox, Loom, Calm, et cetera. Um, yeah, yeah it'd be, be good to know. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest lesson is um, a lot of these companies, and again, it's it's a result of growing quickly, but some of the fundamentals end up being where the most opportunity is. And so we run all of these companies through what we call the demand efficiency framework. Um, so demand efficiency is a leading indicator for reducing costs to acquire. Um, you know, marketing traditionally is seen as a black box, I think, to a lot of non-marketing leadership. And so having helped, you know, 10, 15 of these billion dollar plus companies grow or get to that milestone every year, um, we started seeing patterns in what was really driving results and patterns in what was really holding these companies back as far as having an efficient cost to acquire and then being able to scale that without giving up that efficient cost to acquire. And so we built out this very objective framework where we could actually score how a company was doing. And, and then that painted a roadmap for how we could then systematically improve um, both of those key metrics, right? Cost to acquire reduction and pipeline, qualified pipeline growth uh, or revenue. And kind of in doing so also created this blueprint for non-marketing execs and their boards to, to understand why things were being prioritized and what was being prioritized um, rather than having it be more of a black box where the marketing leader, the onus is completely on the marketing leader to you know, tell the story, put together the board slides. This was something that could really supplement. And so I think that's been the pattern across all of these engagements is running them through that demand efficiency framework and then systematically being able to put the wins on the board that we've promised. I mean, you know, Loom, for example, we drove 69% month over month increase in signups while reducing their acquisition costs by 23%. You know, product board, 99% month, month over month enterprise um, pipeline growth 
uh, list kind of keeps going on and on. Obviously, we've got a bunch of case studies and uh, stories to tell on that front. Did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And so, uh, you, I think you, you mentioned there just a little bit in terms of like what demand efficiency is. And I think like before we had uh, our, our kind of like a pre-call to this, uh, I, I like personally, I, I'd never heard of um, you, you know the term demand efficiency. Uh, I don't necessarily work in the uh, you know. Uh, demand generation or performance kind of like marketing sort of aspects but um but but again i, I guess for the sake of the audience like uh, you, you know a one sentence in terms of what demand efficiency is but also why why should we care now yeah no those are two great questions so the what is it um it's a leading indicator for teams that are looking to reduce cost to acquire if you think about cost to acquire typically you have to do a bunch of activity and then wait and see how it shakes out and it takes time and there isn't prior to demand efficiency as a as a KPI there hasn't been a leading indicator to to guide you and to say okay you know how are we tracking towards this cost to acquire reduction before we can see how it all shakes out in the bottom so um, simply put yeah it's a it's a leading indicator for reducing cost to acquire it looks at the top two thirds of the revenue funnel so you know tofu mofu as well as the handoff and partnership between sales and marketing. Um, so that's what it is. As far as why now, you know, you think about all the pressure in the market, um, and, and rightfully so, good pressure, right? All companies should strive to be as efficient as possible. Uh, that's, again, a non-statement, but there's a lot of pressure from boards, investors, execs to systematically reduce costs to acquire and get as efficient as possible. And so I think arming teams with this common language and common framework and an objective framework at that for how do we accomplish reducing our cost to acquire and how can we communicate that with non-marketing leaders. Um, it's an incredibly powerful tool for companies to leverage now. Um, yeah. And what about then, so we're, we're in this sort of market downturn, um, you know, we're in a recession, we're hearing that, you, you know, could, next year, you know, could be even worse and, uh, hearing whether in SaaS or not people saying like hold on to money and you know cut costs yeah. right um uh and we've gone through this sort of i guess kind of not so long ago but you know in a different way in the, in the pandemic uh as well a lot of uncertainty in the market and uh you, you know marketing and i mean in in cost cutting exercise marketing uh, often seems to get you know uh hit pretty hard uh, and i'm seeing it on linkedin uh you know quite a lot at the moment um what are your thoughts like around that? Because I also seeing that I like I totally get it. Like cutting costs is it's something like and being more more careful and uh, and frugal in these times and in you know in in certain times makes a lot of sense. There, there are also some companies that will, in some ways, kind of look at the the uncertainty and the kind of recessions and may, maybe whether it's, it's it's being smarter or just being a little bit more aggressive and kind of playing to win and try and. You know, to uh, I I don't I don't know, come out the other side and, and really kind of either um, make up grounds in terms of where they are against their competitors, or, or really kind of you, you know pull ahead uh, of them. What what are your thoughts? Is it horses for courses? Is it, it kind of depends? Are you, do you do you prefer um, you know don't slash marketing budgets and go you know aggressive? What what, what does Matamate say you know to its clients? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that there's uh, a strong focus. If you look at the, you know, the talking heads in marketing, there's a strong focus on demand capture, demand creation. These are two terms we hear a lot. And I think marketers in a way shoot, we shoot ourselves in, in our own feet 
um, by just focusing on these pieces because we train the broader exec team leadership that, you know, these are the only spaces that we need to focus and thereby it's easy for them to think about cutting resources outside of those two specific areas, right? But when you think about, and, and this is part of the education that we need to do in the market, when you think about optimizing for cost to acquire and really improving demand efficiency, it's not necessarily those two spaces where you're going to find that. That's kind of like the obvious, simple kind of let's be as technically excellent in channel as possible. But it'd be easy for an exec team to say, great, we're going to go, you know, if you're an in-house team, it's easy for them to say, great, we're going to get rid of this team and go with an agency. Or if you're you know, working with an agency, it's they just turn the screws tighter and say, hey, like figure this out or die kind of a thing. Um, but it's it's missing the bigger picture, right? Demand efficiency and cost to acquire, it's driven by all of the connective tissue and all of the less obvious spaces and on aggregate. So what do I mean by that? Um, if you think about the, the buyer journey and all of the different touch points, I call it connective tissue or surfaces, all the different surfaces that a buyer touches and goes through from their very first experience with your brand all the way through to becoming a customer and converting to revenue, right? That, that isn't just about demand capture and demand creation because that, those two things are, are channel specific and technical. But there are all of these handoffs that happen. There are all of these touch points that happen. And each one of those, if you, if you look at those individually and find ways to improve them, right? You might be looking at, in some cases, there could be a big lift. But let's just benefit of the doubt, be really conservative and say each one of those touch points, you maybe could improve by 1%, half a percent, 1%, something like that. Um, but there are like 50 or more of these touch points, right? The connective pieces, surfaces. And so that's 50% potential improvement to your cost acquire if you look at them on the whole. The problem is that because each one of these is so kind of niche and individual, a lot of the time they get deprioritized as compared to those bigger buckets because it's harder to go to your leadership team or your board and say, you know, our marketing org is working on all these little kind of things that don't actually sound that important by themselves. But the reality is in aggregate, they're wildly important and you could cut your cost to inquire in half by really focusing on them holistically and, and, and operationalizing improvement across all of those surfaces. And so that's really the core of demand efficiency is zooming out, looking at all of that connective tissue, stack ranking them and prioritizing them as far as how much they could impact that cost to acquire, and then creating programs to systematically improve. And we with uh, our, our audience, those that are listening to the podcast, uh, it's, it's predominantly founders, SaaS founders that are, you know, the earliest stage of, of, of their businesses. So what should they be doing, you, you know, after hearing about demand efficiency, hopefully they, they, they knew about it before, but what they should be, do, what should they be doing about it, you know, and how to go yeah. about implementing it in your business? Yeah, this one's easy. I mean, uh, a freebie for the audience, for sure. The nice thing about the demand efficiency framework is we've open sourced it. So um, as a as a founder, you can go to, or, or, or an exec, you can go to uh, mattermade.co forward slash demand efficiency. And there you'll be able to um, have your team, whether it's you or your team, you can give them the link to take the demand efficiency survey. And then that will give them a score and benchmark and compare them to the best in the industry, right? So um, part of this is that we've built up an index or a benchmark, if you will, of how all of the 
fastest growing, most efficient companies are performing on the demand efficiency index. And so any founder can go fill this out and see how you stack up by industry, by you know funding stage. So that just gives you kind of a sense of where you stand, but then it'll also give you the low hanging fruit. It'll show you, hey, systematically, here's what you could have your team focus on to get to that promised land, to improve that cost to acquire. So um, this isn't something that's proprietary to us that, you know, in the sense that we need to help you execute it, but um, really something to make, you know, if, especially if you're a non-marketing founder, make marketing less of a black box, make reducing cost to acquire less of a black box. So yeah, mattermade.co forward slash demand efficiency. Highly recommend either sending your teams there to, to take that survey or fill it out yourself. Very cool. And I know you you mentioned some results of um, you know some of the companies that you work with uh, like earlier. But regarding uh, demand efficiency here, there is there anything additional uh, that you kind of share that companies have this demand efficiency mindset uh, and you know the benefits that they're getting from that? Yeah, I mean, just going through some of our our cases where we've rolled this out. I mean, Dropbox we we increased. Um, their conversions through funnel 6.5x. Um, I mentioned Loom. We reduced their cost to acquire down 23%. Uh, G2 costs down 25%. Let's see. I'm trying to think. Hotel Engine. We reduced their costs down 15%. So I, uh, it's same with Localize. I mean, there's just the list kind of keeps going on where. We ran these companies through our own framework. And at the time it wasn't, we hadn't open sourced it yet. It was just, this was our internal system for auditing opportunity to reduce cost to acquire and drive qualified revenue. Um, but now in retrospect, now that we've open sourced this for other folks to, to you know, appreciate leverage and learn from pretty much all of our best case studies where we've driven down that cost to acquire have been a result of running them through this process. Cool. Uh, very cool. We're moving on to the, uh, the sort of quickish fire rounds. Um, what one thing has moved the needle for you the most in your career? Oh, that's a great question. Um, honestly, I think it's taking care of myself and that sounds uh, maybe corny, but whenever I've let that slip, like taking care of my body, physical health, um, taking care of my mind and prioritizing those two things. Whenever I've let those slip, my work performance has suffered. My ability to inspire others has suffered. My ability to recruit has suffered. All of the, the ways in which I need to be a leader suffer when I'm not taking care of myself as an individual. So I think that's probably, um, probably the biggest for me. What are a couple of ways that you take care of yourself? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty religious about going to the gym and uh, moving heavy weights around. Um, I, I like to generally have some sort of competitive sport in my life. I find that that, especially for you know, folks who are in, some, in, in the industries that we're in and it occupies a lot of your mind share, if you're, you know, in my case, out competitively rowing or getting it beat up playing hockey, uh, you can't really be thinking, you can't be daydreaming about what's happening at work. Your mind is 100% singularly focused on, you know, not getting crushed against the boards or, you know, falling out of your boat or winning the race, whatever it is, like, um, you're, you're, you're singularly focused on being present. And so in and of itself, I find that to be a bit of a meditation. And then of course the physical benefits of, um, having a daily practice, getting your heart rate up, uh, spending a certain amount of time in certain heart rate zones. It's incredibly beneficial. Uh, what's the best advice you've ever received? 
Yeah, I, this question's funny because I was reflecting back on this. I, I think a little fun fact about me. I went to art school. I dropped out after the first year and I, I don't have a degree. I never went back. Um, and the only thing, well, not the only thing, but the, 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 the one piece of knowledge or advice that was doled out then that has become incredibly impactful and true to this day in this, this season of my career, I remember an instructor saying something like, you know, look around you today. Uh, you never know what the person next to you is going to become and don't underestimate what they can become, you know, especially for competitive people. You're, you're kind of thinking about how you're going you're gonna to rise to the top and you're going to be the best, but don't think about it that way. Um, think about what other people around you can become and how you can be resources to each other. And I remember, you know, cocky 20-year-old me was like, yeah, fuck that. I'm going to be the top, the best, whatever. And over time, I've really seen this prove out and, and you know, reassessed and reevaluated how I, how I view the peers and friends and um, people that I encounter in the industry. And it's so true. Like, you never know where people are going to end up. Rising tide fl floats all boats. And so I think looking at everyone that you meet and assuming that they're going to rise to the occasion of whatever it is that they're trying to seek in their career and in their life and seeing how you can support them um, creates a stronger community and it makes you better at what you do ultimately. Yep, no, definitely. I like, I like that one. Um, what's the biggest failure you've made and lesson learned from it? Yeah, I think for me, it's, uh, I let imposter syndrome, you know, I didn't, like I said, I didn't go to college. And um, for me, that was a big chip on my shoulder for a long time. I let that drive actions and hold me back in ways that, that I shouldn't have. And it, you know, it took the realization of having hired a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me to realize that everyone, regardless of how deep their skill set is, struggles with imposter syndrome in some capacity. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's only if you let it hold you back and hold your actions back that it's a real problem. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's probably the, my biggest failure was, was letting imposter syndrome drive for as long as I did. And the lesson learned is, hey, everybody's got it. So just uh, give yourself the benefit of the doubt and push forward. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's definitely, uh, uh, as you say, uh, pretty much everybody's got it. But uh, not everybody admits to it. But uh, what's the hardest thing about building Matamade? Yeah, you know, I think um, everybody's in a hurry. Right, everybody's in a hurry to get to results. Everybody's in a hurry to get to the next milestone, and not everybody is eager to take a step back and learn how they can get there faster by slowing down. Uh, that's a lesson, you know. It's like in racing, smooth is fast, and sometimes you have to go slow to go smooth, um, but ultimately that helps you go fast. And so, it's a challenge to teach people that lesson and to to captivate enough of their trust to say, hey. Let us show you why slowing down to accomplish these things will ultimately speed you up, you know, immeasurably. And um, as a big education challenge, it, it requires us, you know, really investing into the community and not just going out and doing the work because you have to buy the trust and space to do the work in the first place. So I think that's the, probably the biggest challenge is just um, ourselves remembering to slow down, teach people, bring them along for the ride so that we can all rise together. What does your daily routine look like? Oh, I'm very routine driven, uh, as I'm sure probably everybody is in our industry. Um, I wake up in the morning. I try to read 
um, before I wake our daughter up or she's already awake, I go get her. She's 14 months old and a, 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 the best. Um, then we spend the first two hours of our day together before dropping her off. Um, get into the work routine. I don't eat breakfast. I have a liquid lunch. Um, I'm big into like measuring everything that I consume. Um, so everything's tracked. And then I've learned about myself. I have this slump right after lunch typically. And so for the longest time I tried to push through that. Now what I've done is that becomes my gym time, get out of my seat, go move the weights around, get my heart rate up, um, rather than just sitting at the screen and not being super productive. Mm -hmm. Um, come back, finish up the work day, spend more time with our daughter, dinner, um, read, meditate, go to sleep, sometimes watch TV with, with, uh, with my wife, other times just sit in bed together doing our own thing. So yeah. Very cool. Uh, As you've got a 14 month old, I mean, this might impact this, uh, this answer, but uh, how many hours a night sleep do you, uh, you get, or do you aim for? Uh, We've been really uh, lucky to get an amazing sleeper, uh, at least so far. And so I, I get no less than eight hours of sleep every night. Uh, try to try to push that to eight and a half on average. Um, I track it all. So yeah, that's important to me. I'm a zombie of a human if I don't get it. <laughs> Very good. Um, uh, and, and then final questions, uh, uh, Elias. So what are you looking forward to in 2023? Uh, and if anything, what are you most concerned about? I am looking forward to seeing how the industry pulls together. I think that the community will become more tight knit just based on everything that's going on the market. Everybody's truly going to be slogging through it and, and figuring out how to make it a productive time, how to improve. And I think that will require a lot more collaboration, a lot more um, closeness. Uh, not to say that there, it was lacking that, but I just think in boom times, it's easy for everybody to just, you know, we're going to go off and win in our own silo. And I think next year there's going to be a lot more collaboration, a lot more partnerships, um, and I'm just excited to see what kind of innovation comes out of our space, given the constraints that are going to be prevalent probably through most of 2023 and 2024. Uh, and finally, where, where can people find you online? Yep. So mattermade.co. Um, obviously, you can find me on LinkedIn, Elias Rubel. And um, if they want to take the demand efficiency survey, it's mattermade.co forward slash demand efficiency. Cool. Very cool. Well, uh, Elias, thanks so much for being a great guest on the SaaS Revolution show today. Wishing you, your family, a, a great Thanksgiving uh, in the in the Denver cabin. Um, something I'll be uh, uh, sort of dreaming of uh, uh, later, but uh, uh, obviously not living the the dream. But uh, but great stuff. Really love you having you in the show today. We'll we'll be seeing uh, you again. I think next year at SaaS USA. Uh, so thanks so much, uh, uh, Elias Rubel from Matamate. Thank you, Alex. Great to be on the show. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SaaSdoc conferences around the world. Want exclusive SaaS content and actionable insights to grow your SaaS? Join our community of over 36,000 SaaS founders at sasdoc.com.